says, now concerning the collection of the saints, or for the saints, excuse me, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, then they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And Father, we thank you for a chance to be here to worship you and your son Jesus, to be open to the ministry of your spirit. And as we continue now in our time of worship, Lord, as we stand here reverently and respectfully, as we always do of the word of God, We pray, Lord, that we might receive our marching orders from this portion of Scripture as followers of Christ. So, Lord, prepare us, and we just ask that you would speak to us through the ministry of your Spirit and bless the Word of God this day as we worship you through studying it now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, let me ask you this morning, how are you doing in the area of keeping balance in your Christian life? Keeping balance in your Christian life. I think one of the greatest compliments that at times can be given to people is, for example, someone to say, he's a really balanced guy, or she's a really balanced woman, or they seem to be a really balanced family. And I think that could be said very much of the Apostle Paul as a believer. In fact, this last chapter, 1 Corinthians 16, I think reveals that. In chapter 15, as we went through it together, Paul was there speaking about heavenly expectations ahead. Remember, he was talking about things like the rapture. He was talking about uh, receiving our resurrected bodies, these eternal glorified bodies, these wonderful things that are heavenly expectations. And now as he comes to chapter 16, he starts discussing earthly realities in the Christian walk. We see in chapter 16 here, he talks about money principles and organization He talks about making plans and carrying them out, and we'll see interacting with people relationally. And see, the healthy Christian is able, in a balanced way, to both have their heart in heaven and be connected with their heart in heaven, but yet at the same time have their feet still here on earth to walk faithfully with God in a practical way in everyday life experiences. And God's word, I find in a very balanced way, addresses every matter and every subject. And in a beautifully balanced way, God addresses different topics and subjects. And two important areas of the Christian life include, as Paul's going to talk about, giving money and actually making plans. Now, 
those two things may seem like very seemingly practical activities, but nonetheless, they are very spiritual, just as all other things are. Because the reality is how we manage or handle our money that God entrusts to us and how we make and carry out our plans and everyday living and activities, that reveals our heart condition. The way that we do those things is a direct reflection of where our heart is at. And this is what our text, we'll see, is addressing this morning. Remember, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians together, we've talked about how Paul has been addressing numerous different questions that have been asked of him by the believers there at the church of Corinth. And one by one, he's been addressing these different questions they've asked of him. And it seems now, as he comes to chapter 16, he's giving some more responses to certain questions that had been asked. One in particular was how they were to go about giving financially to the work of the Lord. Another maybe was in regards to what Paul's plans and activities were. By his own example, he indicates how he made plans and carried them out as a Christian. But first of all, we'll see in verses 1 through 4 here that Paul first addresses giving of our financial resources to help the work of the Lord or to address some need. That's what he addresses first in response to a question that they had asked him. Verse one, look at it with me again. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, he says, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And then when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, he says, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem and if it's fitting that I go also, then they will go with me. On verses 1 through 4 here, Paul's referring to a special collection that he was gathering among the Gentile churches to bring a gift of financial aid, you might say, or financial relief to some struggling Christians and the church that was there in the area of Jerusalem. Paul refers to it here in verse 1 as a collection for the saints. And then in verse 4, he particularly says there that he was going to bring this gift to Jerusalem, to the believers that were there as saints in the church in Jerusalem. Now, this financial collection Paul's referring to here to help do this ministry work is referred to in numerous different places in the New Testament. For example, one passage is Romans chapter 15. Let me read it to you. Paul there says this of this collection. He says, now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Now, we are not exactly certain the reason that the Jerusalem church and the Christians there in Jerusalem were having this financial struggle. It could be the effect of a famine that had struck in that region. We know from Acts chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, there was a reference to a severe famine that came about during that time that could have impacted the people in Jerusalem in the church, kind of enduring a natural disaster. Uh, it could also be the effects of persecution. 
We know that many of the people that were in the church of Jerusalem were faithful to Judaism and many of them were Jewish and had come to Christ and there was great persecution that came against the early church and particularly them as well. And so many of these new Christians had been cut off from their family, cut off from their friends because of their commitment to Christ. And so they were unable to get jobs at times, unable to adequately provide. Well, Paul seeing this family of God in need, his believers there in Jerusalem who are fellow brothers and sisters, he wants to help serve them. He wants to address them in the midst of their struggle. So he determines to gather this love offering from the various Gentile churches that Paul had planted around Macedonia and Achaia to help them out in some way. Practically, that is to gather some resources financially to help meet their need financially to take the burden off of them. And look, money is a wonderful tool that can be used as an instrument to help people on this planet. Money is a wonderful tool. It is a wonderful servant. It is a horrible master. And money can be used in a wonderful way. And Paul saw that, hey, if we raise some resources amongst the love offering from this family of God, we can help other brothers and sisters in Christ and do ministry there in Jerusalem. Also, I think relationally, Paul was hoping this would settle some of the ethnic tension that still existed to some degree between Jew and Gentiles. The Gentiles helped out their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And even as other churches in Macedonia and Achaia region, as well as Paul says, the churches, plural, verse one in Galatia, had already made this contribution. Paul says here, I've already given them instructions, verse one. So he says, now you must do also. In other words, you're interested. They had inquired of Paul, hey, we would like to participate in that love offering, Paul. How do we go about that? And Paul's answering their question. He says, look, you should do likewise. And then he basically gives to them in verse two, particularly instructions, how they were to go about giving this financial gift and how they were to give to this work of the Lord. So Paul, under the leading and inspiration of God's spirit, supplies instructive guidance to them, giving them particular principles of giving money to the Lord's work. And we see multiple things described here that he directs them to do specifically for this special financial offering he was going to bring to the saints in Jerusalem. Yet, let me just say, these spirit-inspired principles, as Paul records them for us here in the scripture through his directives, can also, I believe, help guide all of us in our financial giving unto the work of the Lord. These are spirit-inspired principles that Paul gave, which give to us spiritual principles of giving unto the Lord's work in various different ways. Whether it's giving unto the work of the Lord to invest and support the needs of a local church ministry that is our active home church, where we receive spiritual ministry and we participate and partner in what our local church is doing whether it's in giving to a missionary or to some missions effort or ministry work that takes place in a supplemental way as well, or maybe some specific situation where a financial gift is to meet a need. In all those scenarios, we find here in our passage, I believe some really good spiritual principles given to us to kind of guide us that we can employ from scripture in regards to giving 
unto the Lord and unto the work of the Lord. And I want to draw your attention to them. The first one I would tell us to take note of here, and we see it from verse 1. The first thing we see is this, is that their giving was helping the Lord's people and was accomplishing the Lord's work. Their giving was helping the Lord's people and accomplishing the Lord's ministry work. Paul in verse 1 refers to this collection, he says, verse 1, which was for the saints. That is, it was for helping Christians. This money was being utilized for the purpose of serving other believers, of helping people. In Romans 15, Paul said there, part of his ministering in Jerusalem included bringing along this gift. So Paul refers to the giving of this gift and this financial offering as something that was used for ministry, for ministering to people. And as I said, money is a practical tool given to us by God on this earth to be utilized for performing ministry work. It's a wonderful instrument to help do the work of the Lord, to bless people and to serve individuals. In the Old Testament, we see how God's people gave money to the Lord by giving their offerings to the temple in order to provide what was necessary to operate the expenses of ministry operations and temple worship and to support the different workers in the temple. In the New Testament, the same concept is carried over with the church and giving unto the Lord as an act of worship and supporting his ministry work and the works of the Lord that happen through the operations of Jesus' church, ministering to people and sharing the gospel and putting forth the word of God and doing kingdom work. And again, we're giving to the Lord, but for people that the Lord loves. And that's the idea. We're giving to the Lord, but yet in our giving to the Lord, it is actually for helping minister to people. The second thing we take notice of here from our verses, and this shows up in verse 2, is this, is that their giving was also secondarily to be systematic, or you might say consistent. Their giving was to be systematic and consistent. That is, it was to be done with regularity, even following, you may fairly say, sort of a scheduled plan. You see what Paul tells them to do in their giving in verse 2? He says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside regarding their financial giving. Again, the first day of the week is a reference we know to Sunday. And so he says every day that Sunday rolls around, typically they were day laborers. They would accumulate. And accumulate. So he says, okay, and then every Sunday... I want you to systematically lay something aside from your income to give unto this work. So the Bible shows their financial giving was not to be done just occasionally or not to be done sporadically or periodically, leaving their financial giving up to the whims of human feelings. For example, where maybe they felt generous, so they gave that week. Or maybe they started feeling guilty because they hadn't given in a while. So they gave a little bit because of their human feelings of guilt. Or maybe the feeling of, well, I think we have a little bit more money right now so we could spare a few extra bucks. And again, the Bible shows nothing of this idea of leaving our giving unto the Lord and to his work to the whims of human feeling when we feel generous or guilty about not doing it or impulsively because we think, okay, now I got a little extra money to spare. Rather, the Holy Spirit directed us 
in the word of God to give with systematic, consistent commitment. Paul gave them a very clear plan here. And giving unto the Lord's work should be done in a disciplined way as a spiritual commitment. It is to be a part for the child of God of the way we operate as good stewards with the Lord's money that we've been entrusted to manage. It is to be something in a sense where it's almost sort of a part of our regular budget of managing what God entrusts to us, where we establish a regular amount with some degree of commitment that we give unto the Lord with regularity to honor him and to regularly participate in his work. So Paul shows here how they were to give systematically. A third thing we see is in verse 2 that they were also, their giving, it was something that was to be participated in each person within the church. Giving financially was something that was to be participated by each person within the church. See what Paul says in verse 2? On the first day of the week, he says, let each one of you lay something aside as he may prosper. Again, this was a universal responsibility of all within the church in Corinth. Paul says each and every one of you within the church, not just some of you, not just a few of you are to give of your resources unto the Lord and unto his work. Rather, Paul says everybody, everybody says in the church should be participating in this act of financial giving, whether rich whether average, whether poor, or wherever they considered themselves on that spectrum, each one, Paul knew everybody could share something. Everybody, to some degree, could give to the work of the Lord. And that was important and healthy that each person did such, because everybody can and everybody should be giving unto the Lord as an act of worship. And that's predominantly what we are doing, acknowledging God as our provider and participating in what God is doing in his kingdom plans. You know, Jesus revealed this in honoring the widow's gift in the gospels. We're told in Mark chapter 12 that Jesus sat down opposite the collection box in the temple, which is the place where the offerings were put. And he watched the crowd putting in their money at the temple treasury. And it says, many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling the disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put into the treasury more than all the others. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus wealth, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Well, isn't that interesting? Jesus, when he saw the few cents that this poor widow threw into the collection box as an act of love for God, Jesus did not say, that's all? That's all? Just change, not even a dollar, but Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't say that's all. He was not impressed, in fact, it says, with how much the rich had given, because Jesus said they just gave out of their surplus wealth. It, was, it barely even phased them. Yes, they gave way more, but they have way more to give. It didn't even phase them how much they gave. Jesus wasn't even impressed with the large amount of wealth given at a surplus. Jesus, at the same time, is very blessed that the poor widow still gave 
that she said, I can give something and I want to give something to honor God and to participate in his work. And Jesus was blessed by that. And he told this story to reveal that it's not about the amounts of money that are given. It's about the heart attitude in the giving and the willingness to see the purpose and the reason to give. And look, that hard exercise of giving from our financial resources, folks, it is a needed thing for all of us to experience a degree of spiritual health. Giving unto the Lord and to the Lord's work, it is not God's way of raising money. It's God's way of raising kids. God doesn't need to raise money. God's fully sufficient. The Bible says the world is mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I can sell off a cattle and, and have the resources whenever I need them. God's very clear. He says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. So God's not trying to raise money. God's trying to raise kids. And God's trying to raise kids because he knows that you and I need to give of our resources that he entrusts to us to help keep a proper perspective on money. And to always realize that God is my provider. That's why I actually have a job or do have some degree of resources because God is my provider. And so therefore, because he's my provider, I want to honor him to give a portion back to him of what he gives to me to acknowledge, Lord, I can give to you because you're going to take care of me and provide for me. And I thank you for doing it. And Lord, I trust that as I give back to you, you're going to take care of me and provide for my needs. And, and we need that process to help this you know develop our faith and our confidence and that awareness and a proper perspective about money it also helps us to overcome our natural tendencies to be greedy and to be selfish and to be self-indulgent so when we are giving unto the lord financially it is a way whereby our heart is being developed and grown in that way and we're giving away more greediness and selfishness from our own being which we all need to agree and we also see as we give unto the Lord that constant reminder for ourselves that there are important things and more important things to invest into rather than just spending all of our money on self-indulgence. And it's healthy for us. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, don't store up treasures for yourselves here on earth where moths eat and rust destroys things, where thieves can break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven for where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves there do not break in and steal. And then Jesus said, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus says what your treasure, what you invest in your treasure, he says, as you invest, whatever your treasure is, he says, you will guide your heart to whatever is your treasure and what you invest in. Look, that's just the reality. People who are blessed to have stocks and 401ks and all those things what's their heart and mind on their treasure everything they invest in so they're always watching and keeping track because because that's their treasure so they're keeping track of their tre their heart is interested in their treasure and jesus said you can actually i can actually make our heart gravitate more towards eternal things and have our heart more towards the things of the lord jesus said you want to know how invest in heaven because your heart will go there <laughs> Because your heart follows whatever you invest into, whether it's money or anything that we do. And so Jesus says, that's one of the reasons as well. I'm trying to raise kids and develop your heart. 
Invest your treasure in heaven, he says, and your heart will be more connected because you're investing into the Lord and to the work of the Lord, and it will bring your heart to a greater degree in alignment with those things. Fourthly, we notice from our verse as well, another principle is that their giving was to be proportional to their income, or you might say to their degree of wealth supplied from the Lord. Their giving was to be proportional to their income or degree of wealth. You see what Jesus says, verse two, he says, or Paul says, lay something aside, storing up, he says, as he may prosper. The idea is in accordance to your degree of financial prosperity. That's how you're to choose what you lay aside to give unto the Lord. You know, Deuteronomy eight says that God gives us the power to create wealth. Always remember that. And the Bible says that in regards to keeping a right attitude about money, that the very power to generate and create wealth, whether it's in your job or, you know, in business, entrepreneurial, you know, skills you have or, or good wisdom and investing. He says the person that gives us the power to generate and create wealth is the Lord. God gives us that power. God graces us in different ways. One translation says, set aside a portion of the money that you have earned in keeping with your income. See, that would be different for all those amongst the church at Corinth. And that's why Paul says this. He says, lay something aside according to how you have prospered. See, some in the church in Corinth were earning a lower income. And maybe they were just struggling to meet their needs and to get by. Others in the church in Corinth made enough money that maybe they were living sort of a, a moderate lifestyle. And then there were no doubt others in the church in Corinth as well who were blessed and had been enriched financially. And had, God had prospered them with a degree of wealth. First Timothy 6, Paul gives instructions there, particularly to those in the church that were rich, to those who God actually had blessed with wealth within the church. And the Holy Spirit directs that the amount of money that these believers in Corinth were to give was to be determined by what each one, listen, could realistically give according to how God had prospered them and their degree of income or wealth. It was not just a set percentage for everybody, but in a spirit of grace and flexibility, it was to be proportional to their individual ability to give financially. So in other words, the Holy Spirit directed Paul to say, look, some may have to give less because that's proportionate to their income level. And then he says, some can give more than others. And then certainly there would be others who could give way more because of the way that God had blessed and helped them in that manner. So God knows the degree of our financial prosperity because he gives it to us. Right? God chooses who lives at this level, this level. And, and God knows that. And God says, look, all I'm looking for is that your heart be right to the degree that you've been prospered, that you give proportionally. Now, you may say, as you talk about money from a, a scriptural perspective and giving, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about tithing? What about 10% in tithing? Well, let me just say, when I study the scripture, I don't see tithing, listen, mandated in the New Testament scripture. It was required and codified under the Old Testament law, but I don't see tithing or 10% as something that is mandated upon the Christian to have to do in New Testament teaching. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, but let me say this as well. 
here's the thing. In the Old Testament, though tithing was something that was a part of the law that they were to observe under the Mosaic law, you have to remember the principle of giving 10%. That's what the word tithe means, 10%. That began showing up in Scripture prior to the law's existence. Abraham, before the law existed, gave a tenth of his resources. Jacob, in the same book, the book of Genesis, gave a tenth or a tithe uh, before the law ever existed. Wait a minute, is it 10% by the law? Wait, but the spirit of tithing existed before the law ever came about. In the New Testament, we don't see this mandated under grace. The New Testament says that we are to give generously and proportionally according to how God has blessed us. And that means this, some may not be able to give 10% in the church. If they gave 10%, we may be helping them out pay their electric bill every month. That's not wise. Others, many can and should perhaps give 10%. And then others, perhaps who God has blessed, can give more than 10%. The idea is proportional, the Bible says, that we in grace and flexibility recognize, hey, let me do what is right in my convictions before the Lord. Look, the way I view things, I can tell you as a personal Christian, is what I see from the very beginning of prior to the law, the concept that typically 10% seems to be a realistic starting point. If they gave 10% under the law, I'm under grace, man. <laughs> I'm under grace. And so to me, I see it as a starting point, but to each his own. God says proportional. Now, the amount that they were to give under the Lord's work, what the Bible teaches was to be predetermined prior to the time the collection was ever received. Because you see what Paul says in the end of verse 2? He says, I want you to do this the first day of the week. Each one lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. And he says, the end of verse two, that there be no collections when I come. In other words, Paul says, look, decide privately at home, then simply bring what you have determined to the house of the Lord to be received. And he says, please, he says, verse two, do it ahead of time so that there doesn't need to be a collection when I show up. I love this. Paul did not want to have to go through the process of appearing like he was taking up a collection with the people of God when he gathered together with them, like he was raising funds. And I think this was purposeful because it kept the focus of giving money in worship meetings at a very low degree. And then the primary emphasis could be upon other things like worship and singing to the Lord and the word of God and prayer and spiritual development. And it was a very low key thing, the act of giving unto the Lord financially. And I think Paul realized as well, it also kept financial giving a personal act of worship and not a pressured obligation. When Paul gets to second Corinthians chapter nine, he's going to say this regarding this giving. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for this generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready, listen, as a generous gift, not grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Then the Bible instructs each one of you should give what you have purposed or decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, that is in response to pressure or because you feel guilty like you have to, 
for God loves a cheerful giver, someone who gives joyously as an act of love towards the Lord. The proper way to give to the Lord's work, the scripture teaches, is not an impulsive decision when the basket's coming down the aisle. Of course, now we don't do that anymore, right? Because we can't touch all the same stuff these days. He said, that's not how it's supposed to be. Oh, great, here comes the basket. Here comes the basket. Pull out something. I don't want to look unspiritual. Fold the bill. Make it look like a 50, only it's only a five. I mean, just don't do that. That's grudging obligation, he says. That's not the way to behave. He says, look, you don't give out of a sense of obligation. He says, each one should prayerfully, thoughtfully, as an individual Christian or as a family, Think through, hey, what should we do according proportionally to what God has blessed us with? What is the right thing for us to give and worship to the Lord and to partner with the work of God that he wants us to support in his kingdom? And to make that determination where you purpose that in your heart privately at home, you decide in advance that you are going to be committed to give that set amount of money as your gift under the Lord, and then you bring it to the house of the Lord where it's then received for the Lord and for his purposes. You know, Philippians 4, verses 15 and 19 even tell us that when we give unto the Lord, it's like a spiritual offering or sacrifice that we bring unto him. And that's where Paul makes that promise. And then he says, and then my God shall then supply all of your need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Listen, since we're on the subject, let me draw to your attention. That Bible promise for God to meet all of our needs contextually is in connection to managing your money God's way and giving unto the work of the Lord. He says, and then my God will supply all of your need. That is, as you give unto the Lord, as I give unto the Lord, we don't have to worry, oh, well, what about my needs? What about my needs? God says, I'll provide your needs as you honor me with the first fruits of the resources I entrust to you. Well, Paul in verses three and four shows that giving money to the Lord's work, also notice, should involve accountability. Giving to the Lord's work, managing those resources should involve accountability. Look what he said in verse three and four. And then when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting that I go also with them, he says, then they will go with me. Notice Paul advised that multiple people should be involved in handling this money that was given unto the Lord and his work. Paul did not take sole responsibility for handling the donations financially. Instead, Paul was actually encouraging, avoiding direct contact himself with the money and saying, look, there should be multiple people involved. And he said, in fact, make sure it's people that you approve. That is those who have impeccable character, those who are faithful, those who you see as spiritually mature and good stewards who take serious, this is the Lord's money. And he says, and then whoever you approve to handle these resources, they will be the ones to then carry the gift and to distribute it in the work of ministry because these folks wouldn't be careless or mismanage the money. They would respect it as money that belongs to the Lord, that came from him and that's to be used in the way that he wants it to be used. And Paul always kept multiple people involved, you can tell, in processing the Lord's money. And I tell you, that is a very wise practice. Any church, any ministry, to a degree, especially in finances, should operate very stringent and businesslike 
to be above reproach in how they handle money and how they manage the Lord's resources and the standards and the protocols to handle those kind of things. There should always be accountability. should always be multiple people involved. I can tell you as a practice here, we have three different men, and that even rotates. It's not always the same three. We have three different men who count the resources financially every Sunday morning. Years ago, when I was pastoring back in Calvary Chapel of York for a number of years, I used to have two. And one day the Lord just put on my mind, it's real easy for two people to get in cahoots and do something dumb. Throw a third person into the mix. And it just, it just protects everybody. It just keeps accountability. So we have three different indules, receive and document and record that. And then we have a record of that. And then that's given to those who manage our resources. And there are multiple people involved. As a pastor, I can tell you this. I do not get directly involved into what comes into the church financially. I don't want to know who gives or who does not give. I don't want to know how much this person gives or that person gives. I don't want to know that. I want to relate to everyone in the love of Jesus, and I don't ever want my heart or mind being polluted. God needs to know that stuff. I don't need to know that. All I need to know is what came in so I know how well to pray. I'm just teasing Lord blesses us. We're very blessed in this church. Wonderful to have such generous people as you all are. And, you know, God's taking good care of us. I know what comes in, and I determine with others how it's spent. But I don't want to know how it comes in. But we have multiple people involved, and there's great wisdom in doing such. And we see that principle laid out here. Well, Paul goes on, verse 5, to then say, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. For I'm passing through, he says. And it may be, verse 6, that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. Verse 7, for I don't wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. So notice here, Paul now begins to speak about his plans for the season ahead and the schedule, you might say, that he intended to pursue. And when you read Paul's language here, it reveals that as a godly man who sought to follow God's will in all things, you can tell that that did not prohibit Paul from making human plans on a practical level. Did he want to know God's will and follow God's will? Yes, but that did not inhibit him from being practical, from making plans. His personal ideas and desires were involved in the planning process. Paul believed that as he sought the Lord for guidance and as he walked in relationship with the Lord, that the Lord was able to put ideas into his mind of wisdom and to put desires onto his heart that would give him then direction how he could make good decisions and plan in a way that would honor God and stay connected to what God wanted. And he trusted God was able to guide him even in his planning process. In verse 5 here, Paul says, look, since I'm going to be passing through the region of Macedonia, which was on the way to and from Corinth, he says, verse 5, it makes sense for me to circumstantially stop by and visit you while I'm in the neighborhood, he says. It just makes sense practically. Yet in verse 7, he says, I don't want to see you right now on the way through, but he says, I want to stop on the way back. And the reasoning he tells us here is he didn't want to be forced to make a quick visit because he knew he had to keep moving. So he expresses, look, I want to have a prolonged visit with you. That's why I'm going to try and stop my way back through 
that region. That's why Paul says there in verse 6, it may be that I can remain or will remain with you, or even, he says, spend the whole winter with you, that you can then send me on my journey next wherever I go. So Paul was hoping to spend, it seems, a few months with them, and that then they could help him then transition to wherever he was going to go next on his missions, work, and ministry endeavors. Paul says, verse 6, you can help me to move forward wherever I go next. You see that there? Wherever I go next. What does that show us about Paul? Paul says that was still to be determined. I have this plan, this plan, and this plan, but I don't know where I'm going to go next after that. And this shows of Paul here that some things he planned, but he didn't over plan. He didn't have the five-year, 10-year plan. He had the temporary seasonal plan. He had some generic plans. Paul says, I think I know what's best for this next season, but I don't plan out every step of my future. I don't even know where I'm going to go after I visit you there in Corinth. He believed the Lord would reveal those next steps when the time arrived that he needed to know at that season. So he expresses his desire to spend some quality time with them with an extended visit. That's why he says to them there in verse 7, I don't want to see you now, but I hope to stay a while, he says, with you. If, look what he says, verse 7, if the Lord permits. So notice with me, Paul made plans, but he allowed the Lord to make revisions to his plans. Paul had a flexible attitude. He had that balance of trusting the Lord can give us desires and we should operate in those things. We can make a plan and pursue it if we sense that's what God's leading, but also to be humble and wise enough to realize that we may not always be accurate in following the Lord's direction in our life. And so therefore, if I didn't really hear 100% accurately, or maybe it was my idea, not God's idea, sometimes the Lord may need to overrule to stop me from doing such, or to reroute me if perhaps I got a little bit off track. Paul says, this is what I plan to do, but he adds in the caveat, verse 7, if the Lord permits. See, Paul had learned this. The book of Acts reveals this, that sometimes the Lord allows us to do what we're pursuing, and other times the Lord forbids us or hinders us from the thing that we plan to do or are pursuing. In Acts 16, Paul started going in a particular direction for ministry, and it says, but the Holy Spirit did not permit him. Paul was going out, and he was actually trying to preach the gospel. He was trying to plant a church. Why would the Lord stop that? It just wasn't part of the Lord's sovereign plan. And so the Lord hindered him. The Lord didn't permit it to happen. He didn't allow it to go forward. And Paul, rather than be upset or angry, he just, okay, I guess rerouting. Lord, what do you want? And it was through that hindrance that Paul helpfully found the next step for him. And Paul didn't strive. He didn't force it to happen. He just remained sensitive. And look, Folks, some people never make plans. It's almost as if they're afraid to make plans. And I don't think that's a healthy thing. Some people super spiritualize how God leads and they, they try and make it so mysterious and, and so you know, hyper-spiritual and utterly they end up remaining inactive and ineffective and just dormant and stagnant in their lives. Sadly, some Christians spend their whole life like a perpetual spiritual freshman, undetermined, 
undetermined. Undetermined. That's not good. It is totally good and biblical to make plans prayerfully and wisely. That's God's intention. The Bible speaks highly of making plans in the book of Proverbs and pursuing plans because that's what keeps us productive. That's what helps us to be good stewards and, and keep counting on. Now, another problem on the other side of it is sometimes people make plans, but then they make their plans. And when they got a plan, I have made a plan. And I have heard from the Lord. This is the Lord's plan. And they make that plan and they engrave it in stone and they do not factor in the realities of earth. Which calls unexpected events and interruptions and people fail to anticipate unplanned things or life events or changes or trials or disappointments and changes of direction. Look, life, if you haven't noticed yet, is not cut and dry. It's not always just cut and dry, black and white, and to refuse change is not wise. Nor is life totally under our control. You can't control everything. You can try, but you're going to be perpetually frustrated. And that's not God's intention either, that we become so strict and rigid when we have a plan that we are not open to modification or, you know, that just leads to stress and struggle. And it also leads to then striving in the flesh when the Lord's saying, would you stop doing that? And we can just strive and strive. Paul made plans, but his mindset was very open rather than strict. Paul was very flexible in spirit and in his activities. You know, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say to us at the pastor's conferences, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. The book of James tells us in chapter four that we should say, hey, I'm going to do this or do that if the Lord wills. So if the Lord wills, we're going to go here. If the Lord wills, we're going to do this. And if the Lord wills, we're going to do this for that long and so on and so forth. Again, this making of plans with the balance of being permissible. Lord, here I made that plan, but it's in pencil and you have the eraser. And if you need to reroute me, Lord, whatever you want, whatever you permit, I'm going to let that determine what I do and don't do. Paul says, verse 8, but I'm going to tarry here in Ephesus or wait in Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, Paul was in uh, Ephesus when he was writing this letter, and he senses, you can tell from verse 8 here, that it was best, and therefore he made a decision in a practical way to hang out in Ephesus, he says, until the Feast of Pentecost, the holiday, had been observed, and then he would head out or move on afterwards. Again, I look at this, and I have in my notes here how utterly practical that Paul basically said, as he evaluated his situation, making his decision for what he would do and when he would do things, he took into account there was a time to just wait and stay put and stay for a season doing what you are. And then there are other times in life when it is the right season to then move on. And Paul believed that God could guide him in the midst of those everyday practical Affairs. Paul says, you know, I think it's best to stay here through the holiday. And then once the holiday season is done, that's probably a good time circumstantially to then move on. That's basically what Paul's saying here. Just using this incredible practical wisdom. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. 
And that in our heart, we plan a course, but the Lord directs our steps. And God can lead us through supernatural, in supernatural ways through natural everyday events, circumstances and seasons and those kind of things, life situations. Be sensitive to God's timetables and factoring in, hey, this seems like a right season to do this, but maybe this is the right season to then change and make a transition. And this is part of listening to the Lord's wisdom. Look, let me say to you, don't be in a rush to move on to the next thing or the next season if it's not the right time yet. By the same token, if the seasons come to a close, move. Don't sit there perpetually either. Oh, but I really like summer. Well, you can keep wearing your shorts all winter long. You're going to be very uncomfortable. Pay attention. There's a time and a season, the Bible says, for every purpose under heaven. Paul tells us why he wanted to do what he was in Ephesus. Verse 9, he concludes, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So why did Paul want to stay in Ephesus through the season of Pentecost? He indicates why, because there was great spiritual opportunity and a fantastic chance to do the work of the Lord where he was there in Ephesus. He calls it a place where there was a great and an effective door, he says, that the Lord had opened unto him. Paul here acknowledges this is a time of great opportunity. Some unusual, special chance had been set before him. And Paul says, this is an open door from the Lord, I can tell. The hand of the Lord is upon this. He knew, he saw the evidence of God's favor with this opportunity. And so Paul wants to redeem the time. He wants to make the most of the opportunity. He says, hey, I can tell this is an open door from the Lord. And he says, it's a great opportunity, so I want to capitalize on it. He describes as well here as an effective door. That is, it seems there was fruitfulness happening through what he was doing there in that place with this opportunity set in front of him. That is, the work he was doing was proving itself to be effective. What Paul was doing was being successful in its impact. The Lord was blessing, and that was an incentive to Paul. I should keep doing this because it seems like it's being effective. It seems like this is very effective in helping the people that I am ministering to, and this gave Paul incentive to carry on. But notice also, with great spiritual opportunity came what? Intense opposition. See what Paul says there, verse 9? He says, a great and effective door from the Lord's open to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul admits, despite the great opportunity and the effectiveness, it was attracting a lot of counter-resistance spiritually. Because the reality is this, folks, often spiritually serving the Lord and following his plan, especially if God's in something and he's blessing, is going to bring a degree of spiritual resistance and warfare from the enemy of our soul who wants to shut down something that the Lord is in and the Lord is doing. You know, you can always tell when the Lord is in something you're doing if there's a welcomed opportunity and it is being effective. Is it a welcomed opportunity? Is it effective? That is, is it proving useful? Is it proving helpful? Okay, well, then that's probably the Lord in that. But you better be ready to know as well there's going to be adversity to overcome because the devil is going to try and stop anything that's seeming to be effective for the Lord because he wants to run resistance against that and hinder whatever is of God's plan. 
know, for all of us here this morning, let's make an intentional effort to seek to be, as I said at the beginning, balanced Christians. Christians whose hearts are in heaven with the way that we consider and evaluate what we do and don't do, but Christians whose feet are on the earth and are practically, faithfully walking things out as the Spirit gives us the wisdom to do such. Would you stand with me and let's pray.